Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. I always like to give a little preview of what's coming up on the show. So first off, for our inbox, we have a listener who met a guy who said he's a new believer, but he is also a registered sex offender. And so is this something like a reason not to date him, even though it happened before he became a Christian? One of our counselors, Yale Kushner, is going to weigh in with some advice for that. And then for our culture segment, Ashley Chestnut is here to discuss the topic of women and sexual sin. So she meets with a lot of women who are struggling with this and has some great thoughts on living in freedom, whether this is porn, sexual fantasies, having sex with your boyfriend, whatever. We're going to cover it all. Okay, well, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, we're going to have a conversation beginning this week, continuing next week, on the topic of repentance. A lot of people, you know, if you sit in church for any length of time, hopefully you're in a church that talks about repentance. Now, as I'm saying that, I'm like, if you're not, um, you might need to ask some good questions. But what is true repentance? What does this look like for someone to repent? Maybe you've been in a scenario before, and I was saying uh, to our guests beforehand how everyone thinks everyone else needs to be repenting. Uh, we often don't think that we need to be the ones repenting. And so um, I have got Tim Sanford. He's our clinical director of counseling here at Focus on the Family. So Tim, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. And then Mark Bates, he's been on the show many times. Um, He's my former pastor. He has since defected, working in full-time administration and leadership of um, missions, of our missions board for the Presbyterian Church in America. So welcome, Mark. Good to be here, and I'll always be your pastor. Yay. Okay. Well, and really the whole, the reason I invited you to is when I thought of people who probably have repented a lot of various things, I'm like, oh, Tim and Mark, I need to get them here because clearly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is going to, they're going to uh, be experts on this. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> More true than you think. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. We'll talk through that a little bit, but I had to give you a hard time about mm-hmm. that. So, okay. The first thing we have to do is um, get some definitions under our belt. So I would love if someone were to ask you to define the word repentance, how would you define it for them? Let's start off with that. Well, let me jump in because repent is a verb. So there's an action here going on. It's not some idea or concept out there. And it has three parts from what I understand. One is I, I feel bad, sorrowful, sad for the wrong I did. Number two is I make a concerted effort to fix any damages I did. And the third part, and this is the one that a lot of people, I think, leave off a lot of times, is I make a commitment and a plan, Lisa, to not do it again, to go a different direction. Okay. That's how I understand repent. Okay. Mark, what would you say? Yeah, uh, very, very similar. I I think as we think about what repentance is, it's, you know, literally, uh, you know, change of mind, but we know it's it's not really just changing a thought pattern. It should, should be changing a life. So... Uh, for me, I might summarize it slightly differently, but same idea is I think there's a sense where you have to actually own your sin. You have to acknowledge it as sin, that it's evil, that it's wrong, and then grieve it. I think this is stuff that uh, many people, they go, hey, I know it was wrong, but it doesn't really bother them that it was wrong. It, you must see it as truly an offense, as something, and it it should be something that you grieve. And then after you, you grieve it, though, uh, and this is part of how repentance and faith work together, there's that handing it over to Christ and recognizing that you are forgiven of that, and then understanding that forgiveness, then out of that, turning from your sin, living differently, and then, of course, I think having that plan for what's going to be different, and I'm sure we're going to get more into that, is, uh, is a pretty critical step. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, I think, based on what both of you guys have said, you know, the, the idea of normalizing repentance, because I think too often from movies, we think of like, repent, the end is near, like some weirdo, like fire and <laughs> right. brimstone thing. And we think it's some, you know, monumental, colossal thing that like, you know, okay, well, now I'm a Christian, so this doesn't necessarily apply. I've made that one time, you know, repentance or whatever. But... We know, I think it's Martin Luther who said all of life is repentance. And so it's the dailiness of repentance that I think is so important for us to to remember. And we want to get into some of the practicalities there. So, okay, well, let's talk about, because you would think that if someone recognizes exactly what you guys said, you know, someone, you know, this is wrong. This is a wrong behavior. This is a wrong attitude, whatever. I grieve it. I, I don't want to do this. Why in the world do we fall down over and over and mm-hmm. over again? What, it, you know, I mean, what is, you know, we're struggling with a particular sin, 
feel like we've confessed it a thousand times and we feel like the needle isn't moving. What is all that about? Mm. Explain that to us. <laughs> so Jim, thank you, Jim. Yeah, okay. uh, pass the baton. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think part of it we have to recognize that uh, once we were born again, we are new. But being a new creation doesn't mean everything is uh, is done away. We still continue to struggle with the flesh. Uh, we still continue to struggle with the sinful desires. In my opinion, of Romans chapter seven, uh, where the Apostle Paul talks about, "I do the things I don't want to do, and don't do the things I do want to do," is a confession of a Christian. Mm-hmm. He, he's still battling uh, the inward sin. So I think part of that we have to recognize: we our, our redemption is not fully complete until glory. And and so what uh, that continuing battle of sin reminds us that we continually need to seek Christ. The mark of a Christian is not sinlessness. The mark of a Christian is repentance. And so, you know, playing off of Luther there. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, and one of the key things in human behavior is we always do things for reasons. Mm. Now, a lot of times I have no clue the real reason behind what I'm doing. I think it's one thing and it's something else. So whether it's my past traumas, whether it's um, I'm still involved in some addictive behavior, whether it's just I had some real screwed up beliefs that were taught to me I just have a lot of insecurities for myself. There, there's a reason why I keep doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. There, there's either a perceived payoff or a payoff or some reason. And so part of when I find myself legitimately sorrowful and I still keep falling down going, wait a minute, am I trying to ice skate on high heels? <laughs> Duh, maybe it's the high heels I need to look at, mm-hmm. not just I'm sorry for falling down. Mm-hmm. So that's where you come in with either mentors, a pastor, a good friend of going, what is going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. that I am not aware of? I'm clueless. I'm blind to this. Please help me. What do you see? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think this is good because I think each of you probably in scenarios throughout your careers as Tim, a counselor, and Mark as a pastor, have seen people come into your offices and been like, okay, Here's, I want to gripe about this person because they have sinned against me. And here's the deal. And let me outline the whole situation. But then what they're super concerned about is that this pattern is going to continue or that they're going to give too much ground. Or what if I forgive this person, but then they just come back and hurt me again? Or what if, how do you recognize in a person? Now I could say this on a lesser level. This was like me and my dad, like through all of junior high and high school, because I felt like I'm a super rational person. I felt like I would approach something that I thought was very rationally to him and he would be like mad and fly off the handle and then he'd be like, okay, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have acted like that. And then the next time we fought about something, it was the exact same pattern. Then I would blame him because I would then get super mad and I would be disrespectful and mouthy. I know you're all shocked by this behavior from me, of course, but... And it was just like this crazy cycle and neither of us could figure out like, how do we mature in this? How do you know? Okay, so there are several questions there. Let's start out with Mm. someone comes to you, they say they're sorry. How do you know if that's legit? What do you do with that? Well, let's jump in because legitimate sorrow, let's say it's legitimate and it's Mm -hmm. a legitimate repentance, doesn't mean that they're a safe person to be in relationship with though. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So often like with things like forgiveness and other things, well, I forgave them or they asked for forgiveness and so now we're buddy buddies. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. So they have repented and let's say it is genuine because we'll probably get to the fakey stuff later. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's say the repentance is genuine. The sorrowfulness is there, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said. And there's something that's just they're still not safe Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, either in maturity, self-centeredness, trauma in their past. They're not a trustworthy person. And so you're not going to be able to get along with them well. They'll keep offending and hurting you because they're not a safe person to be around. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so going back to what Tim said earlier, you know, we sin for a reason. And uh, uh, even if we may not know what it is, but really all sin is rooted in unbelief. We don't trust God. We don't trust his promises. And so oftentimes our repentance is shallow. So let's take the example of someone losing their temper. And so they repent of losing their temper, but there's some false belief that's causing them to lose their temper, such as, I felt like my daughter was disrespectful to me. Mm-hmm. And so, but then even there, there's, you know, should a daughter be respectful to her father? Of course, yes. But 
that anger is an inappropriate response. And so because he so treasures, possibly in this case, the approval or respect of his daughter or the control of the situation, whatever it may be, there's some false belief in order for me to be uh, a person of value or dignity of worth, I've got to have your respect or I've got to have control. And that's a failure to trust God in the situation. So I think that's where oftentimes we repent of losing the temper, but we don't stop to ask, well, why did I lose my temper? Mm -hmm. What is it that's so valuable to me that I think I have to cling to and I cannot trust God in this situation. Mm -hmm. And so with a friend, though, that's much harder. I think it goes into all sorts of other questions that Tim brought up. It's like, you know, they may need to work through some things, but if they're a friend you trust and there's that safety, you can ask those questions. Why why is this so important to you? I mean, why are you so mad about this? I'm not saying it wasn't wrong, but, uh, you know, why are you not safe? Yeah. Well, Mark, and you're exactly right. It's that if you do— do that word picture of like the dominoes, you know, you stack mm-hmm. them all up and you hit the one and you go da, 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 all the way back. Part of what we do in counseling is, wait a minute, yeah, you, you got angry. Okay, that's this domino. Wait a minute, why did you get angry? Right. Let's go to that domino. Well, what's behind that domino? And it may be a real insecurity of I need people to like me to feel good about myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the domino you need to repent about. Yes. That's the domino you need some truth because there's some lies there going on. Mm-hmm. And so it's following those dominoes back, and that's where, again, a friend, a mentor person can come in because I think it's just I'm angry because, Lisa, you made me angry, and it's all your fault. Mm-hmm. Whoa. <laughs> and, and I can't see the dominoes, and so Mark comes along and goes, <clears throat> hey, buddy, you know, buck up, and starts working the dominoes back with me until I can go, okay, now I see it. And that's sometimes what's behind it is we need to keep looking backwards till we can find that. Yeah. And it seems like we're so often either fearful of self-awareness or we just don't know how to Mm -hmm. go after that to understand what are the motivations? What did this trigger in me to, again, we'll immediately go to the other person. And I wish, you know, I used my dad and I as an example. He's with Jesus now, so it's all cleared up. Dad, hey. Well, (laughs) but the good news is by the time I moved into adulthood, it was you know, eventually I matured. And I think my dad got to the point where about when I was 30, he decided he wasn't going to try to like actively parent me anymore. (laughs) It was a hard transition. But I wish that we would have had more of the tools in our tool belt to understand that and to go after it biblically and practically in that sense. And Um, that's why a community is so important. Yeah. Whether, again, whether it's friends that are going to be honest with you, that is. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you go, I hate them to be honest with me. Well, Mm -hmm. that's probably the honesty that you need. Again, mentors, older people that can speak to your lives, pastors. That's what we need that because I can't see that. Mm-hmm. And I won't voluntarily go back down the dominoes because I know what's back there and I don't want to go there. Yeah. And all of a sudden I got you in my life going, Tim, let's go back there. Yeah. And that's what I need. Okay. Let's give, again, moving into definitions here, because this is another thing I think that crops up commonly in in circles, and certainly we hear this at Boundless, the difference between struggling with a sin and just sinning. Okay, mm. so a lot of people will say, well, you know, the reason I fly off the handle is that's really a struggle for me, or they'll just kind of like right. put a little veneer on it for whatever reason to say it's a struggle, or for example bless your hearts, some of you, you know, we had had someone write in who was like, I really struggle with sleeping with my girlfriend. So that's just what we do on Friday nights. So it's like kind of, <laughs> you talk about it as a struggle, but there's a difference between struggling and temptation and obviously the fallenness of our natures and whatnot and choosing to actively sin. Let's talk well, about the you, difference. You need, to, you need to open the Christian dictionary because struggle means let me off the hook. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, I if, if you're, if you're blunt, that yeah, okay. that, that's one in the, in the Christian dictionary. Just like, oh, call me sometime means goodbye. Okay. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't really mean that. And so I think a lot of times when you say struggle, that means let me off the hook. I'm not trying to pretend to be perfect. So just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the word struggle means. Look it up in the real dictionary. Mm-hmm. You know, struggle means... I'm moving forward. I'm making progress, but it's just doggone hard, and I'm still doing it. Mm. My eyes are set on the goal. I'm still going there, two steps forward, one step back maybe, but I got a good goal. I got my eyes on it. It's just doggone hard, but that's where I'm going, and you ain't going to stop me. Mm-hmm. That's what the struggle really means. Yeah, Yeah. and so in a, in a case like that, are, do they really see what they're doing as sinful and offensive to God, and does it bother them? You know, if you love someone— and you do something that's constantly offending them, 
it bothers you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so in this particular case, it doesn't sound like he's really bothered that he's offended Christ who died for him. And so I think that would be a first thing to deal with. And, so, and if he is bothered by that, if he does love Jesus and say, you know, I, I would challenge that first one then to be, if he does love Jesus, say, okay, then let's struggle. And that goes back into, okay, how about accountability? How about uh, understanding, you know, boundaries and relationships and friends that can help you out? But but if you're not willing to do that, you're not struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, that's let a, me off the hook. Let me off that's the hook. A, <laughs> and I think that's a great point because I think we do need to recognize that, you know, we will be tempted. I mean, Satan is not just sitting back on his hands. I mean, he's going to look for and find our weakest areas. What are the, you know, what's the the bait that he can dangle in front of us and what does that look like? But um, but obviously the distinction that you guys made is, is key. Let's talk, both of you alluded to this, and so I kind of want to ask this as well. Let's talk about the ramifications of sin without mm. repentance. So our relationship with God, our relationship with others. I mean, I think we grossly underestimate how sin affects every area of our lives. And um, in fact, I think it was a, a writer for Boundless who one time talked about how, um, might have been a, a pastor who wrote for us, if I remember, and he talked about how if uh, a guy came to him and said, you know, pastor, I'm just really, I'm struggling to get into the word. I just can't, you know, focus. I can't concentrate. I'm just not really interested in it, uh, the things of God. The first question he would always ask is, are you sinning sexually? Or mm-hmm. where? what's going on in the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. And inevitably, there usually was something there that he could point to. And I think that's something that the pervasiveness of sin and how it affects other areas of our lives Talk about, you know, examples of where where you've seen that or what, you know, the egregious nature of, of some of that as it comes to play in everyday life. Again, I think part of it is we don't see the, I forgot who said it, the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. We don't see its true horror because we, we, we're so, you know, we become nor- it's been normalized for us. And so... Um, so, for example, uh, you know, uh, we always go to sexual sin, like that's the only thing. There's so many others, but it's just an obvious one. Uh, you know, a man talked to me. He was struggling with pornography. Uh, he knew it was wrong. You know, he knows it's wrong, but he doesn't think he's hurting anyone. It wasn't until his wife found out and he saw the tears in her eyes that all of a sudden he begins to realize, oh, this is worse than I thought. And, uh, and, and recognizing that defense, and again, towards God, uh, that we have here, and do, do we truly understand it, or we make it say, ah, it's not that that big of a deal, but it, it, it caused damage to him and his relationship with his wife that he didn't know he was, I'd say, he was in denial about the uh, damage he was causing, mm-hmm. and uh, we want to excuse it. I think you have to come face to face with it. The other is, I th- think we don't really believe that love, that God's love for us is free and gracious and because of that, whenever we're dealing with God in terms of our works, ba- rather than on terms of God's grace, then God is always the um, the taskmaster, the uh, the hard boss, and you're not going to want to please him. Mm-hmm. So I think, ironically, the more we understand about the love of God, the more we're going to want to please him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Puritan said that long ago. That's mm-hmm. not original. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What comes to my mind, I'm a former mountain guide, and back in the days when we actually had maps and compasses, we didn't have GPSs back in those days. And, you know, you can take a, a compass sighting, you know, in the Colorado mountains, and, yeah, it's only two degrees off. That's not that big a deal. Hmm. It's not a big deal. But you take that 10 miles out, and you're three ridges over, and you're completely lost. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we get this idea, and, and I've been in the church my whole life. I was in church before I was born. I'm the preacher's kid, the missionary kid. And so, um, you know, back in the days when it was hellfire and brimstone, and it was sin, 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 bad, bad, bad. And I think we saw the overside of that, and we swung the pendulum now that it's okay. We all sin. No big deal. Everybody just like everybody. Roses, bunnies, and Jesus, and it's fine. And you hear the sarcasm, at least in my mm-hmm. voice, going as the preachers get, because we know that. And, and, and so we've downplayed and minimized the seriousness of it. If you are completely lost in the mountains, that two degrees on your compass makes a huge difference. And so sin, whether it's it's purposely intentional and active or more passive and I'm just not taking action against it is going to impact me in every part of my life because 
it messes with my thinking mm -hmm. as well as my heart. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was right when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's the opposite of truth is the lies and sin and sin enslaves us. Mm -hmm. So it's going to impact you whether you see it right away or not. Yeah, so true. And we talk about that in relationship to like our interactions with other people, the idea of like conflicts with other people, keep short accounts, keep short mm -hmm. accounts, you know, make sure that you're not, but we don't often think of that with God. We think he's just going to give us a pass or kind of this idea of like, well, I'm a Christian. So, you know, I'm God's child. It's all cool or whatever. But that idea of like, again, committing to repentance, both to God and to others and to be in that spirit of repentance, I think is so important for us to remember. All right. Well, we are going to continue this conversation next week. Are you guys willing to hang around and continue? Sure thing. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I do want to let folks know, though, on the front end, because as we have conversations around this kind of stuff, it can bring up a lot of a lot of issues or just a lot of thoughts. And we want you to know that here at Focus on the Family and Boundless, we have a team of counselors, not just Tim. We'll make Tim, we're going to make you take all these calls. Here we go. Um, not just Tim, but a, a team of licensed professional Christian counselors who can kind of set you on the path for maybe getting some right thinking here and help you even find a great counselor in your own area. And so uh, you can do that one of two ways. You can either go to focusonthefamily.com slash get help, or you can call for an initial consult that's entirely free. And like I said, we'll kind of get you the, um, the initial start to what you need to know. And that is by calling 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family. Again, that's 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family. So you guys, thanks so much. We will continue next week. We're going to get into talking about like the people we follow, like leaders, people that we've trusted, you know, getting into some of that and also talk about other elements of repentance as well. So thanks much, guys. Thank, Thank you. In all your glory, turn my eyes to my heart to sing in wonder of how you love me. Turn my heart, oh my God, forever you reign here and now. Folks, we're here for this week's culture segment and uh, another author for you this week on a topic that might be surprising for some and is a little bit of a, a rough topic when we break it down into the practicalities. But I have got Ashley Chestnut with me. She is Associate Young Adult Minister at the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. I know I always say that. I, I want to say Birmingham, but it's Birmingham or something like that. Right, Ashley? <laughs> It's Birmingham. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, good. I feel like anytime I pronounce anything in the South, I hear from listeners who are like, that wasn't even correct, Lisa. You know, whatever. So, okay. Birmingham. Let's say Birmingham. Okay. Um, you well, you are very involved with counseling young women in particular within the church. Um, and you, you work some with uh, single young adults there in ministries. And your book that uh, is, is new is titled, It's Not Just You. And the subtitle on that is Freeing Women to Talk About Sexual Sin and Fight It Well. So welcome to The Boundless Show. Thanks for having me. Well, this is great. Um, okay, so let's first of all talk about, you know, what some might assume is like the elephant in the room or just something weird about that, where most people are assumptive that, oh, when you talk about sexual sin, whether it's pornography or masturbation or anything along those lines, we're just talking to men. And you're saying that is not the case. Many women struggle with sexual sin and it's much less talked about. And so, 
maybe talk to us a little bit about why, you know, or, or we'll say, oh, you know, that's primarily that affects non-Christians or um, it's not, you know, not as prevalent, you know, which may or may not be true on some levels. But uh, talk to us about why, what you've been seeing as you minister to young women and really what prompted you to write the book. Yes. So I do work at a church here in Birmingham, and I started out in college ministry. And uh, there are several universities in, in the Birmingham area. And as I was discipling young women, their stories that kept coming up were stories of pornography addictions and struggles, sex with their boyfriends, masturbation, same-sex attraction. I mean, the whole gamut of struggles. And, you know, it's hard to know statistics because there's underreporting and, and getting a wide survey. But qualitatively, I was seeing that a, a majority of the women in my local context, in the local church in which I serve, have either a past struggle with sexuality or a current struggle with sexuality it, to some degree. And And so a couple of years ago, I had done a survey among 80-plus young women in our church that are out of college in their 20s just to get my head around, like, what are the struggles current and past? And then what have they heard teaching on? And, And so where is the disconnect even between what the church is teaching on, what they know is sin, what they don't know is sin? And, yeah, so all of that has led to this, but... Basically, we're seeing that women do struggle, and it is underreported, and there seems to be a lot of shame attached to a woman that struggles. And I don't know if that's because we only talk about it with men or we mostly talk about it with men, but not with women, but I've seen a lot of guilt and shame surrounding this. Yeah. Would you say that generally when you speak with women, are they surprised by their desire to sin in this area or that it is a a stronghold for them? Or do you think it's something that they should, quote unquote, beat or maybe even, as you alluded to, they don't understand what is sin and what isn't? What what are kind of the experiences around that? Yes. So to some degree, there is the I don't know if this is sin or not especially with masturbation, because there are mixed teachings about that um, from the world, but also there isn't um, consistent teaching on that even among believers, which, I mean, can you think about the last time you ever heard a pastor preach on masturbation? (laughs) Thankfully, no. But yeah, no, I hear you. So if a pastor isn't preaching on it, if student ministries, if college ministries aren't teaching on it, where are people getting their understanding of of teaching from Scripture? And if the church is not discipling it, we're relegating sexual discipleship to the world. So I have encountered ignorance. I've I've encountered that. Um, But there's also, I mean, we don't need um, ignorance as an excuse to sin. So there is also the, I want this, and it feels good, and I'm going to do it. And Uh, So, I mean, you're going to encounter every attitude and every motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you say in the book, you you basically describe people as being tempted with what they worship. Can you explain that for us and how this applies to the issue at hand? Yes. So Paul David Tritt, if you're familiar with, with him as a counselor and author, he has what he calls a principle of inescapable influence. And that's what I worship. Um, has inescapable influence over my life and behavior. And so if you think about what is it that I worship, and worship is just a shorthand for what I love the most, what I think about the most, what I desire the most, what I fear the most. Like, that's, that's what we worship. And so that is what drives us. So we can have past experiences. We can have nature and nurture. And those things influence us but they do not determine our behavior. They, they do influence our behavior. They influence patterns, but they don't determine it because we are choosing, but we're choosing according to what we love, desire, fear, and think about, and that's what we worship. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting because I think some, you know, some talk about like like you're saying, and we're we're going to talk about, and you you talk about in the book, whether it is uh, pornography, whatever whatever it is that women are struggling with. Some of them, it's just uh, you. In fact, give the the story about a young woman who you counseled who would have sex with her boyfriend before going to Bible study. And what can you just kind of explain the encounter that you had with her? Because I think that's a great example of disassociating. You know, just just basically choosing to say, well, you know, many will say, well, this is just an area I can't get control over or I'm so good in so many other areas of my walk that, you know, just this one thing, God will give me a pass or or whatever. But why do you think the disconnect there between what we say we believe and then the behaviors that we exhibit? Well, there can be a lot of reasons for that, Lisa. And I do think an important piece of the conversation is we, we need to think it through what is sin and what is suffering. And so, you know, I can see somebody like this young woman who is having sex with a boyfriend and then coming straight to a Bible study group. And, and I can look at her and I could judge her or have all kinds of assumptions. But and, and, you know, it is sinful for her to have sex with her boyfriend. But at the same time, if I am listening to her and understanding her story behind the sin, is actually the fact that she has a story of trauma and sexual abuse. She's a recovering addict as well. And so I also need to be dealing with her on those other issues. I need to be understanding where are you in dealing with the abuse that you've suffered early in your life? And how are you using maybe this relationship? Are you using it to cope with the addiction you just have been fighting the past couple of years to stop? And and so do you, it's a bigger conversation than just you did that, that was wrong, that was sin. That's only part of the story. And we need to understand people holistically and deal with them holistically and deal with their sin as well as deal with any suffering that's in their story that might have led them on a pathway to sin. Yeah. Well, would you say, Ashley, I mean, I think that some of this stems from people not really understanding really how God designed sex and the purpose for it. And I know the whole, you know, the whole aspect of living covenantally and the purpose of marriage in that. Why does stepping back and understanding that framework help us, you know, rather than just saying, here are a bunch, a list of don'ts, just make sure you white knuckle your way into marriage or whatever, which is, I think, what people try to do. Give us the bigger, more redemptive, hopeful picture of why this, why sex is a good thing in God's book when used rightly. Well, the bigger picture is that, first of all, God designed marriage and sex to be a picture of his relationship, uh, the relationship between Christ and the church. So if you think about a parable, you've got uh, an earthly truth pointing to a spiritual reality, and marriage is pointing to the greater reality. And so whatever good and, and pleasure there is in marriage and sex, which there is good, there is pleasure, it's pointing to the goodness and the pleasure that there is in knowing God and being known by Him and the intimacy, relational intimacy that is there. And it's reflecting the the Creator who designed sex. I mean, He's not anti-pleasure. He's the God who created pleasure. He's not a killjoy. He's the author of joy. And the parameters that He puts on sex and marriage is because he wants us to live in the fullness of joy. And we see the damage that occurs, for example, with sexual abuse, when, when what he's created is misused and it's used to hurt people rather than used in the structure that he set forth. So, I mean, it's reflective of him and his design. And, and uh, even with that, this is going to veer off, but it's going to hit on what you're saying. Like, if you think about it, we don't have commands for all of the sexual scenarios that we face in our culture. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, you don't see sex robots mentioned in Scripture, but they're a reality in the world that we live in today. And so how do we think biblically about these things um, when we don't have commands? And that's when we have to back up and look at God's design and the principles of his design. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk, let's take this a little bit into some of the practicalities around this, because I would say I am guessing that you have heard from women and from others, and I know I have here at Boundless, uh, just talking about the timeline of sexuality. So a lot of people will say to me, Lisa, well, this is all well and good, and what the Bible says is all well and good, but the fact is, you know, I'm not married, and so how am I supposed to get through my 20s not having had sex? Like, why would God deny that me? And, and you know, when I look at statistics and, you know, we're looking at average marrying age, ages of pushing around 30 now, a lot of young adults are just throwing in the towel and they're like, there's no way that I could just make it that long. And so either I'm going to have to turn to porn or masturbation, or I'm going to have to sleep with my boyfriend. You know, you probably talk, Ashley, to women who are like, if I don't sleep with him, he's going to dump me. So how, what's your response to, to people who are basically trying to offer a bargaining chip to God by saying, God, look, you know, either you've got to bless me with this, or I've just got to take matters into my own hands. Hmm. Well, even just that, that attitude, you know, <laughs> that is a bad that... attitude to start with. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's just even start with what, what is the heart? And are we coming at this with an attitude of entitlement to God? Do we think that we deserve this? And do we think that sex and sexuality is needed to have a whole and, and good life? And it's not. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus didn't have sex. And, and Jesus didn't masturbate. And I mean, because he was perfect, sinless and righteous. So, so if you think about that, was Jesus not fully human? And, and what about the apostle Paul? Because as far as we know, he was single. Now he could have been married at one point. We don't know. But as far as we see when he's writing Corinthians, he's single. So are we saying that they weren't fully human, that they didn't have a fulfilled, satisfied life. No, in fact, quite the opposite. And so I think it's important to come back and to come back even, I'm thinking, I'm going through the Sermon on the Mount right now, um, personally, but also with the small group that I lead. And we just finished talking about Matthew 6. And I'm, I'm just even, the text in Matthew six nineteen where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I think my question would be, where is your heart? What is it that you're treasuring? And to think that sex and sexual fulfillment is the end all be all is to have a very earthly perspective. And we as believers are called to live what's for, we're called to live for the eternal, not the earthly. Mm-hmm. And we're called to live with a big picture in mind, which is the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom on this earth. We're not called to live for the pleasure of sex. Mm-hmm. Like that's a very small view of what we're called to live for, the purpose that God has for us. That is a very small view. And God calls us to something bigger and greater than that. Right. Well, for the woman who's listening, Ashley, and, you know, there are going to be some, and and I never want to dismiss the idea that there are women listening here who do, you know, are addicted to online pornography or, you know, many of the things that we say like, oh, women would never, you know, do that or whatever. And, and it is, it's a struggle for many. Um, or they are, you know, they are living with their boyfriend or consistently sleeping with their boyfriend. But then there are also many who are like, well, what I'm doing, you know, don't say that what I'm doing is bad because I'm not really sinning. All I do is, you know, I I really like Fifty Shades or I, you know, only sleep with my boyfriend a couple times, you know, a month or something like that. What talk to us a little bit about the uh, person who wants to self-examine and be like, what does it look like to, to live with integrity towards the father in this, you know, not be caught up with rules and regulations and ifs and if nots and whatever. But but there is an element of what are we taking our thoughts captive? What does it look like to live in this? What would be your advice to those women who maybe are saying, well, what I do isn't that bad? Mm. I appreciate the question. It comes back to, do we see sin as sin? And all sin, whether it's done once or a couple of times, whether we consider it 
not so bad, and I'm doing that with air quotes. I know you can't see that on the air. Uh, But if it's not so bad or if it's what the Church of the World would consider a big sin, all sin separates us from God. All sin is against God, and it's the offense may not be big or small in our eyes, but because we sinned even once, Christ had to die so that we could be reconciled with God. And so it, we have to come back to look at what is sin, and do we view our sin, do we view our actions the same way that God does? And and he doesn't call he does call us out, but God also calls us up. He calls us and I'm thinking about First Corinthians six, which is one of the big sexuality chapters. Um, but if you are thinking about First Corinthians six, we have to remember that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within We were we're not our own. We were bought with a price and we're to glorify God with our bodies. And the idea there of the Holy Spirit living in us, it goes back to the temple. Like this was the place, the temple was the place where God dwelled and and people were supposed to wash when they entered. There was a cleaning, a spiritual and a physical cleanliness that was associated with approaching the Lord. And, and here Paul is saying the Holy Spirit lives in you. He lives in you. And how much more are we to honor God with the body that he is residing in, especially as we're thinking missionally and trying to reflect him to a lost world? And so are we holy and pursuing holiness power by his grace? Hmm. So this obviously, I mean, our conversation, Ashley, begs the question for the person who's listening They're basically saying, okay, but Ashley, you don't know, you know, you don't know what I've done or you don't know what I've tried. I've tried to break free of this. I just can't. I don't know what to do. What's your encouragement to them? What's a starting point for someone who is mired in this? This is a stronghold Mm -hmm. for them. They are struggling day in and day out. What does it look like to step towards freedom? What are first steps? That's a great question. So a couple of things here. First of all, what's your motivation? Because you're right, this could easily be a to-do list. This could easily be legalism, especially if I've tried all the things before. Mm-hmm. So so what is my motivation? Why is it that I'm wanting to quit this behavior? And and what am I hoping for on the other side of this? So, so I would say you, you need to start by identifying the motivation and and then I would also say you can't do this alone. Um, you're going to need a community that can support you. And and I'm not talking about a community that's just going to, uh, you're going to confess and they're going to be like, well, you shouldn't have done that, but thank you for confessing. Now do better. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but when you think about all of the one another commands in Scripture in the New Testament, which there's like over 59 of them, but I'm supposed to love one another, encourage one another. There is rebuking. There's also praying for one another, show hospitality, encourage. Like, this is how we should be treating one another. And you're going to need those people in your life who can walk alongside you because you can't do it alone. And you're going to need people that you can hang out with if the temptation is too much. You're going to need people you can call. You're going to need people who can write you encouragement notes. And, and who are willing to learn alongside of you. And, and so you're going to need a community. But then also there might be other resources you need. You might need a counselor. You might need a recovery group. Um, so I would say if trauma or addiction is where you are, take advantage of those resources, whether it's digital or whether it's in person, depending on what's available to you in your community. So, and then it's going to be a process. So this is not going to be something that is probably going to stop overnight with the snap of your fingers. It is going to be um, a process and it is a choice that you make day by day and sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. But we're going to have to think about this where sanctification is a lifelong process 
not necessarily an instantaneous one as much as we would like that. So there's more that I talk about with that in part three of, of the book that I've written, but big picture, those are some handles. Yeah, that's really good. And I like the fact that you encourage folks to avail themselves of professional help, because sometimes that's so valuable Mm -hmm. as a tool. And in fact, I want to, as we finish out today, I want to make sure that folks know that we here at Focus on the Family and Boundless have an entire team of licensed professional Christian counselors. And you can even Mm -hmm. call us, just call 1-800-THE-LETTER-A-AND-THE-WORD-FAMILY. 1-800-A-FAMILY, or you can go to our website at focusonthefamily.com slash get help, and you will have resources there. You will have an opportunity to uh, get a call from one of our counselors to kind of maybe hear a little bit of where you are and get you started on a path of getting some help even within your area. So uh, they offer a complimentary consultation on that front. So please, please uh, avail yourself of that. And again, uh, folks, we've been talking to Ashley Chestnut. The book is It's Not Just You, Freeing Women to Talk About Sexual Sin and Fight It Well. Ashley, thank you so much for writing the book, for doing the work that you do with women right in your area. And hopefully this will really empower a young woman listening to take those first steps to getting the help that she needs in this area to honor God in every area of her life. Thanks, Lisa. I will trust in Jesus' power. By this power I will endure. Though my flesh may fail, I stand secure. Here we are for our inbox where we answer one of your questions and they really run the gamut from faith to just life stuff to relationships. And today we have one of our counselors, Yale Kushner here. Hey, Yale. Hi. Great to see you. Good to be here. All right. Well, let me go ahead and read the question and then you can go ahead and, and take it away. Our listener says, I recently met a guy from a church I occasionally visited. Not long ago, he confessed to me that although he's a new believer, he's also a registered sex offender. This shocked and disturbed me. I'm looking for guidance on what to do about my relationship with him. Should I care that he's a registered sex offender if he's professed faith in Jesus? And should this be a reason not to date him? Well, Lisa, that's a really good question. And I'm glad this person asked. I think there is a a larger question than this embedded in that. And and that would be related to, is it okay to date somebody who is a a felon, mm-hmm. you know, a convicted felon, and that person has come to faith? Is it important to know that? How does that impact a relationship if they're just a, a run-of-the-mill, if you could say that, convicted felon? Um, a registered sex offender is a little different category. Going to get to that in a minute. But just know that as a convicted felon, this is going to be a part of this person's record for the rest of his life. Mm. So anytime he applies for a job that they do a background check, it's going to show up in the background check that he is he or she is a convicted felon, and that could impact whether or not they get the job or what level. And if you are in a relationship with someone like that, that is going to rub off on you. You're going to be impacted by that person's past. What I really want to make a point here, both this category and the more specific in a moment, is what God says about our sins. The, the bottom line, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's no sin that we confess to God that he won't forgive. But what the reality is where he forgives, he doesn't always and rarely removes the consequences of what we have done. And those sometimes are lifelong impacts. This is a situation where someone who is a convicted felon will have a record that will track them. Um, They may be able to move on with their lives. The person involved with them 
will be impacted to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about a convicted felon who is also a registered sex offender, that is a whole different level of problems and challenges. And, and even though what I just said about how God forgives applies to this situation as well, the ramifications of being a registered sex offender and a felon go far beyond uh, anything that people really think about when stuff like this is happening. So as a registered sex offender, this person will not be able to go to many places. They won't be able to go to beaches or parks, um, church possibly, anywhere where there is, if it's related to children, um, anywhere that there may be children, they will not be able to go ever, not just for a period of time. In addition, they are controlled about what areas they can go to. They must register in the area where they live. If they're going to leave to go on a vacation, if they're going to leave to relocate, they have to go to the police, indicate that they're a registered sex offender. And that, again, is going to track them most likely for the rest of their lives. Um, And as a result of that, when they apply for work and the place runs a background check, and they find that they are a convicted felon and a registered sex offender, it's going to be very rare, unfortunately, so, but very rare that an employer will take the risk of hiring this person. So if you are thinking or involved with somebody who is a convicted felon and a registered sex offender, this is going to impact your life in such a way that you will inherit a lot of what his limitations are. And so what I really counsel someone like this to do is you do a lot of praying. You do a lot of good um, spiritual searching with input from church members, from pastors, from counselors. You do your own research about what this could mean to your life. And to know that you potentially are putting yourself and any future children you might have at risk if this person has a relapse. Yeah. Well, that's such a great point and a good comprehensive um, way of addressing that. So I really appreciate that, Yale. Thanks so much for your insight there. Um, all right, folks. Well, um, we always love answering your questions when we can here at Boundless. And uh, certainly those of you that have a question that you're wondering if we've answered in the past, you can go to boundless.org and just search. And topically, you'll see a lot of stuff uh, comes up. And so um, at the same time, definitely what Yale said is true. Go uh, to your local church, to pastors, to counselors that you know. Again, they're a great source of wisdom as well for some of the stuff that you're walking through in everyday life. So. Uh, Folks, I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.